What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. February 13, 1966. A group of young children spent the afternoon sledding down the snow-covered hills in Krakow, Poland. But one 19-year-old was looking for a very different kind of thrill. This is somebody who chose to do evil. He knew the difference between right and wrong, and yet he chose to harm others anyway. Press called him a vampire and a beast. People were really, really afraid. As the day drew to a close, 11-year-old Lesik Kalik began walking home alone. A strange man emerged from the shadows and approached the young boy with a bayonet. Lesik was violently stabbed 11 times. He was completely lacking remorse, and he was so young. To completely lack a conscience, be a kind of fully formed killer before he's even age 20 is really shocking. After he would kill, he took great pleasure in licking the knife and tasting the blood. This aspect of the vampirism is something that has made his crimes sufficiently unique. This is what makes a killer a series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Carol Cott, the vampire of Krakow. Carol Cott was born December 18, 1946, in Krakow, a southern city in Poland near the border of the Czech Republic. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley and author Marta Zrader discuss his seemingly happy and healthy home. His father worked as an engineer, his mother was a stay-at-home mom, and they were quite a respectable family. It was like a good, loving family. Uh, his mother uh, didn't work especially for him, so he didn't have to go to preschool. When Cot was eight, his sister was born. I think that really did unsettle him quite a lot because he's been used to being the centre of attention for eight years. He feels that she's the favoured one. And whether or not that's true, um, often when we look at dynamics in families, it's not what parents are doing or not doing, it's how children are perceiving that. So I think he felt pushed out, I think he felt slighted right from the beginning. Dr. Tomasz Konopka talks about Kot acting out against his younger sibling. Carol Kot said that his parents loved her more than him. He said that's why he abused her. He tried to introduce military order at home. I think Kot's relationship with his sister is a warning sign. And this was the beginning, I think, of a process for Kotz, um, a process of expressing himself in, in a dysfunctional way when things weren't going as he wanted them to go. And it's one that, that escalates slowly over time. Another warning sign of Kotz's mental state was his cruelty towards animals. They had two cats in the house, and he was, like, treating cats badly. He was throwing them at the walls, things like that. Often when we look back at the childhoods of serial killers, we see some form of, of harm, some form of abuse towards animals. And, and this is something that individuals do to maintain some control because they have feelings of, of trauma, of basically feeling slighted, of feeling left out. 
Cot developed abnormal interests during family vacations 30 miles south of Krakow. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel has more. On holiday, he would go with his parents and ask to go to the slaughterhouse. That's when he understood that he loves blood. He's fascinating with blood. He was talking about it like um, he noticed that blood is still warm. It was alive just a moment ago and it was something very special for him. One of the most extraordinary incidents when he was in the slaughterhouse was that the slaughterman drained blood into a cup and passed it to him for him to drink. They thought this boy would simply freak out. He did exactly the opposite. He drank the blood, which in turn freaked them out. He said that knife was like his biggest love uh, he can think of. He was admiring uh, knives. He actually can speak uh, in surprisingly sophisticated language about knives. It wouldn't be long before Cot's fascination would become fatal. Later he started to thinking, uh, how, how does it feel to put knife into a human body? But he didn't have the courage. So he started to hurting small animals at first. And he noticed that the blood affects him. It makes him excited. Cot joined a target shooting club while still in school when he met Danuta, a girl with whom he became obsessed. She was six years older than Carol. They became like friends. But from his uh, side, I think this uh, relationship looked a bit different. I think she treated him as a friend and he was in love. Cot disclosed some of his sadistic fantasies and brutal deeds to Danuta in a twisted attempt to impress her. Forensic psychologist Rex Julian Bieber explains. I suspect she finds him cute. She's sure the stories are untrue or made up, um, but, but she's just not excited by them. And in some ways, that's exactly what Cot needs. He, he needs somebody who can hear his craziness, who he can brag to, who he can storytell to, who he can relive with, uh, and not have them screaming bloody murder. On a shooting club outing, the young Cot could not suppress his violent urges. After having told her that he's this person, he attempts to prove it to her by attacking her and even starting to strangle her. He attacked her. He pulled out a piece of broken glass from his pocket. He told her he wanted to cut her wrists and throw her into the river so it would look like a suicide. She responds in a very interesting way. She laughs. She doesn't take it seriously and tells him, in essence, well, you know, everyone knows that we're together today. So if you kill me, you'll definitely be caught. And he stops. What you have to be impressed with is the woman herself, because her momentary psychological sophistication probably saved her life. Following his failed attempt with Danuta on September 21st, 1964, a 17-year-old Cot felt compelled to attack a complete stranger for the first time. Carol Cot was describing that day the urge of killing was so incredible, but he just couldn't calm down and he started to walk across the town with a knife. And then he thought that he will search for some lonely woman uh, in a church. And he went to one of the churches and he was waiting. Later, Cot claimed that he was about to leave when Helena, a 48-year-old woman, entered a church in the middle of the city to pray. He took out a German military bayonet from the sheath and he stabbed her in the back. 
he stabbed her just like once uh, in her back, trying to reach the heart from the back. Here's forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton. When someone is stabbed, they will describe feeling as if they've been punched. You don't necessarily get that sharp feeling you might imagine. That would be a surprise, it would be a shock, it would be unpleasant. It's only when there's blood coming out that they they realise what's going on. So in the moments in this blitz attack, I think perhaps this victim didn't really understand what was going on. Remarkably, the 48-year-old woman survived. To stab someone to the back, you are primarily looking at damage to the heart, damage to the lungs, and that certainly can be lethal, but it's not usually instantly fatal. The woman didn't realize that this had happened. She probably didn't feel any pain. It was only after she left that she realized, when she went to a shop and someone told her that her clothes were bloodstained. The interesting thing about the first attack is it shows you how naive he is. His stabbing behavior doesn't have a chance of killing anyone. He doesn't understand really how you kill somebody, right? So it's like he's exploring it. It's like he rushes in, he stabs, he waits for something to happen. He thinks magic's gonna happen. Blood's gonna be everywhere and he's gonna have a dead body. A mere two days later, Carol Cott, equipped once more with a military-style bayonet, unleashed a savage attack. And this time, he was successful in taking his first human life. Krakow, Poland, September 23rd, 1964. Two days after his first attack, where he stabbed a 48-year-old woman who survived, 17-year-old Carol Cott was on the prowl again. His next target was an elderly woman chosen at random. I think this illustrates how much he enjoyed the first attack and how much he wanted to continue the, the high that had come along with that. One characteristic that connects all the incidents was that he attacked single people. Single, meaning there were no witnesses. I think the choice of victims here is no accident whatsoever. We know that elderly people and elderly women in particular are one of the target groups for serial killers because they are physically weaker and they are often on their own. And that vulnerability makes it easy to to target them and, and to take their lives. Kot's next victim was a 78-year-old woman named Franciska, spotted getting off the tram. As she went into her apartment building, Kot pounced. Franciska survived the attack, but never recovered from her wounds. The stabbings pierced her backbone, and she had problems walking for the rest of her life. I think that Kot, with all of his victims, he was trying to kill them, but... He wasn't willing to hang around long enough to make sure of it. He was trying to escape. As news of these shocking events rattled the citizens of Krakow, Carol Cott became even more emboldened. There would have been a bit of a buzz, a bit of a fear in the community around them. And to know that he's created this is something that he's going to be really enjoying. So he will be escalating his offending. It is going to be more violent, more serious, more prolonged. Six days later, on September 29, 1964, Cott spotted an elderly woman near a nunnery in Krakow. Armed with his bayonet, he pursued her. She's also stabbed from behind, but, but this one seems to have been more ferocious, given that he's driven the knife into her with, with much more ferocity, much more force. 
86-year-old Maria died, but not before she managed to say a few last words to the nun who found her. The nun said that when she got close to her, she was laying on the floor, breathing heavily, and she said just two words, young boy. Today, one of Poland's leading coroners, Dr. Tomasz Konopka, works at the same hospital where Maria's autopsy was carried out. The examination showed that the wound was not deep. The wound went through the back, through the muscles, and ended in the backbone. The conclusion was that because of the pain and shock related to the stabbing in the back, her heart gave out and she died. Fear intensified across Poland as news continued to spread. Panic broke out in Krakow. People were afraid of going out in the evenings, especially women. People were warned not to go out alone, not to go alone to the church. I think it was very difficult for the inhabitants of Krakow to comprehend that a, a boy could be responsible. The first reaction was disbelief. The second reaction was fear. And then, in the autumn of 1964, Kat's attacks came to a halt. I think he just calmed down after he actually, for the first time, succeeded to kill someone. Uh, he was just continued going to school, going to his uh, shooting section, uh, just normal everyday life. Kat had gotten away with murder, but his bloodlust continued to fester within. He appeared to have stopped killing for a two-year period, but during that period of time, he still would have been having violent thoughts and violent fantasies, and, and we can see that, that this is exactly the case with him. Kot's desire to kill was escalating, and by the end of 1964, he'd come up with some new ways to unleash misery. He, he turns his offending to, towards other outlets, setting fires, poisoning. So he's always creating harm. He's always externalizing his trauma to hurt other people. He confessed that he had planned to kill a large number of people by changing his method to poisoning or arson. He was putting poison, for example, into a bottle of beer and leaving that bottle of beer uh, somewhere and hoping that someone will... Um, be tempted to drink it. As it turns out, Cott wasn't very good at executing his poisonous plans. When you look at what he actually does, it really confirms how completely devoid of, of ordinary social understandings he has. He does things like go to drinking establishments, leave out drinks half drunk that have lethal doses of arson, and sits and waits for somebody to pick up the drink and drop dead. He, he doesn't have a grasp of social behavior that people don't go around bars picking up half-drunk drinks and drinking them. That's just not what people do. Caught then turned to arson. He committed at least four arsons. We only know about them from his testimony. That's because these were failed arsons. For example, he poured gasoline on some rags in a room, and he hoped it would start a fire. It did not. He tried to set an attic on fire. He said there was smoke, 
and fire, but no inferno. Fortunately, none of the four fires started by Kant resulted in any fatalities. Again, he doesn't even know how to set a fire. He can't, he can't get a whole structure to, to burn down to save his life. He's, he's just trying to find a way to get death to happen, doing as little as possible, and he can't seem to figure it out. By February 1966, 17 months after his first murder, Cott could no longer contain the urge to kill again. I think he definitely would have been fantasizing during that period about those attacks he carried out before. So he carried out some very violent attacks that had, had a real impact on the local community. He created fear and he was reveling in that. He was enjoying that. And when he came to kill again, it was going to be something horrendous. This time he changes direction. He doesn't target elderly women. He targets children. He goes to a local mound which attracts tobogganists, particularly children. On Sunday, February 13, 1966, Carol Cott was in search of an easy target when he spotted 11-year-old Lessig. And this attack is really ferocious, so he turns the boy towards him. He stabs him 11 times. And this is a real ramping up of his offending. So he's not just killing this individual, he's using much more violence than he needs to get that job done. So this is about more than that. This is about completely obliterating someone. This is about saying, well, I can do to you whatever I want to do to you. It's about status, it's about power, and it's about entitlement. The autopsy later revealed that Cott had punctured every major organ in the young boy's body. The stabs were deep. The strikes damaged the aorta, the heart, the lungs and the liver. The boy had no chance of surviving the attack. Carol Cott fled the scene as Lessig bled to death. He just left him like this and walked away. What also surprised me was that he said that he went straight to the patisserie, bought some cakes, and took them home. The butchery of an 11-year-old boy was a clear sign that Cott's ferocity was intensifying. This is Cott in his new form. This is the fully-fledged butterfly. He's absolutely at one and determined to destroy his victim. It isn't very long before he chooses another. Carol Cott, now age 19, had viciously attacked four people with a knife, killing two, an 86-year-old woman named Maria and an 11-year-old boy, Lessig. Cott's lust for blood was far from satiated. April 14, 1966, two months after his last kill, Carol Cott struck again. His next attack is on a seven-year-old girl. So he's targeting vulnerable victims. He's targeting people who he feels he can control, who he feels he's got power over. Cott concealed himself in an apartment building's stairwell and waited for just the right victim. His decision depended on who would appear. A seven-year-old girl came to the mailbox from the upstairs. He approached her, grabbed her with one hand, and stabbed her with the other. He stabbed her eight times and left the girl wounded and bleeding. Incredibly, the seven-year-old girl survived the savage assault. However, 
The psychological scars would last a lifetime. These children, they are only just kind of forming their, their, their views of the world, their, their views of other people, and to be attacked randomly by someone who is also just a child is something that, that will, will stay with them forever and is going to, to shape their relationships with other people. Very often people who are attacked as children can move on from it. They, they can go on and have fulfilling lives and, and move on from their trauma, but it's something that really is going to set them off um, the, the track that they were on for, for quite some time. Following this ruthless stabbing of a child, Cott confessed his latest crime to the woman who remained his obsession, Danuta. He tells her what he's done, and, and I don't think this is, is any kind of remorse or any kind of catharsis. I think this is, look at me, look what I can achieve. You should be impressed by this. For some reason, Cott decides to boast that he has attacked the child. She doesn't believe him. She thinks it's fantasy, another of Cott's constructions, until she reads about the story in a local newspaper about the stabbing. The horror of the situation came crashing down on Danuta. She realises that the man, the young man she's known, may be more dangerous than she thought he was. And she talks to her psychiatrist. He advises her to go immediately to the police. Ultimately, the one person in the world who he could trust was the avenue to his being caught. Danuta's knowledge would prove crucial for investigators in locating the young murderer who had terrorized Krakow for two years. Coupled with the description given by some of the surviving victims, Carol Cott was now the police's prime suspect. However, they didn't immediately arrest him. In the months between April and July, they placed him under surveillance. And there was a good reason for that. They wanted to be absolutely sure that he was capable, that he was sane, and indeed they wanted him to sit his school examinations to prove it. So the police waited until after he'd finished his exams before they arrested him. But this was a really high-risk strategy as well, because you're waiting to arrest somebody who has committed violent offence after violent offence, and I think this really did put the public at risk. The Polish police finally apprehended Karol Kott in the summer of 1966. And it's after his final exams in school, and I think that really does bring home how, how horrific this is, the, these horrendous crimes that have been committed by somebody who's so young. And when he's arrested, he's arrested in school. The most striking moment of the case was uh, when Karol Kott was arrested and everybody realised that the beast, which was everybody afraid for such a long time, for two years, was just a, a young schoolboy. This young murderer was now under arrest. You could say that Krakow breathed a sigh of relief. People stopped being afraid of a killer. Though Karol Kott wasn't ready to admit his guilt. But when he was presented to the two elderly ladies that survived the first attacks, he was instantly identified by them. He even said to one of them, the one that shouted at him, it's him, that if she wanted, he would finish killing her. Carol Cott had no choice but to come clean. Cott doesn't plead innocence. He glories in his guilt. That is exactly what he's always wanted. This is the tableau that he wanted to paint for himself. 
He bragged about these crimes. He talked about these acts like it gave him pleasure. And the press give him the nickname that he must have lusted after, the vampire of Krakow. I think he wanted forever be remembered as one of the city's most dramatic residents. I wouldn't call him dramatic. I would call him depraved. The term vampire was used, not only because he killed, but also because he drank the blood of his victims. He said openly that when he killed or maimed his victims, he took pleasure in licking the blood off the blade of the knife. I think he really would have relished being called the vampire of Krakow. This is somebody who has got quite a narcissistic element to their personality. They want to be noticed. They, they think that they deserve to be noticed. They're, they're entitled to, to be lauded by other people. And I think having that name, the, the vampire of Krakow, this brings with it some kind of status. And I think this is very important for him. Kat's ego trip would be short-lived. He appeared before the judge and jury, and the truth of his crimes was made clear to everyone. Now, the only person whose life was in danger was Carol Cott. Soon after he was arrested in July 1966, the 19-year-old Cott eagerly took part in the reconstruction of his offenses. Police do reenactments as a common technique, and there are many reasons to do that. One of the most important reasons to do that is a reenactment is one of the ways that you determine whether or not a person claiming to be a killer is the real killer or whether or not they are somebody who are just seeking the fame. The reenactment will show whether or not you did the crime in a way that is consistent with the physical evidence and it allows you to be more sure. A reconstruction can be a useful thing to do. It enables witnesses' memories to be jogged. It, it sometimes leads to, to new evidence. But, but in this case, I, I think he got more out of it than anybody else did. He was actually a kind of uh, directing all the show. And he was just saying to cameramen or where to put lights, I'm going to stab from that direction, so that light shouldn't be here. You will, you will not see anything and stuff like that. He was up on a pedestal. He was important for that moment. There was a crowd of policemen around him, a crowd of people, and finally, he could start showing off. One of the policemen asked me, does it feel the same to do it all over again? He, says, uh, he said that, well, almost, but I'm missing just one thing. And policemen asked, what is it? And he said, blood. Cott's response during the reconstructions dispelled any reservations the police officers may have had about his guilt. It was obvious that he did it because they made the reconstruction of all five attacks. And he was saying, he was showing every details what exactly he was doing. He did not show any remorse. He was proud of what he did. He described the series of murders. He even showed how he licked the blood of the blade after he committed the homicide. Carol Cott was put on trial in Krakow on May 3, 1967. Cott, killed as a schoolboy, stood trial for 
two counts of murder, ten counts of attempted murder, four counts of arson, all before the age of 20. In addition to his attacks on two children and three elderly women, Cott was also prosecuted for the many other lives he put at risk in his poison and arson attacks. Obviously, everybody was in shock. His whole family and friends were in shock. That such an innocent-looking person from such a good family could do such terrible things. In all, 64 witnesses testified at his trial. There were many who took to the stand to vouch for the young man's character. Initially, everybody defended him, not only his family, but even his school teachers. There is a letter in the files written by his shooting section trainer that shows his support for Kut and his innocence. However, Kut's courtroom behavior shocked both friend and foe as the young man relished the limelight. He was cheerful. He was laughing. While his friends were testifying, he was waving to them. You could see that on the films shot in the courtroom. He was proud then that he could perform almost like an actor, that he was the center of attention. He was even proud of what he did. It horrifies me. During the trial, Cott displayed disdain for the pain and suffering he inflicted upon the innocent. At the trial, he just showed a complete disregard for his victims and their families. There was an absolute lack of remorse. And that doesn't surprise me whatsoever, because here we have somebody who only cares about themselves. If he felt sorry, he would only feel sorry for himself. He'd only be sorry that he got caught. And unfortunately, you're, you're never going to get sympathy from somebody like this. They don't care about the mayhem that they create. They just care about what it's done for them. He showed no remorse. There was no apologies to the victims. He simply went blank because he was fulfilling his own fantasy of himself. He was fulfilling the painting that he'd always wanted to paint of his life. This was Cott's creation and the killings were that. He didn't ever admit that he's feeling sorry. He was saying that to him it was moral because what brings you pleasure, that is moral and that it was his private thing that he was taking uh, someone else's life, but he doesn't think that he is criminal. Cott soon alienated his family and friends. Had he not been caught, I think he would have just gone on to kill even more people in even more violent ways. This is somebody who, who enjoyed killing, who enjoyed feeling power over others. When he started to say that it brought him pleasure and he would continue to kill, the voices of support fell away. Carol Cott confessed in detail to all of his crimes. Usually the perpetrators of such killings defend themselves, try to come up with any line of defense. He did not do that. On March 17, 1968, after a series of appeals, Poland's Supreme Court convicted Karol Kot of two counts of murder, ten counts of attempted murder, and four counts of arson. When he was sentenced, the judge said of him that he was more dangerous than a savage beast because he was endowed with reason. Kot was certainly not insane. He never, for one moment, expressed an item of regret or remorse 
for any of his victims. At age 21, Cott was sentenced to death. On May the 16th, 1968, the 21-year-old Carol Cott was hanged by the neck and executed. Till the end, even after he was sentenced to death, he said in an interview that if he were to be released, he would kill again. And Carol Cott was a psychopath. He knew what he was doing. He knew that it was wrong. This is somebody who chose to do evil. He knew the difference between right and wrong, and yet he chose to harm others anyway. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Blair Payton, Lauren Vogel, Pam Burrows, and Karen Bevan. Production for Woodcut provided by Andy Papadopoulos, Jenny Day, and Kula Anastasi. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producer for Woodcut is Kate Beal, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. On the next episode of What Makes a Killer. Washington State, March 1995. The body of 41-year-old Julie Winningham was found just off Highway 14, strangled to death. He's a monster, six plus feet, 280 pounds. My mom was five pounds, 100 pounds soaking wet. Julie had become the eighth victim of an active serial killer named Keith Jesperson. The 39-year-old truck driver had been murdering innocent women across America for five years, eventually confessing to the murders in an anonymous letter sent to a newspaper, signed with a smile. They're hens in the hen coop, and Jesperson is the wolf at the door. <laughs>